Paul and Ash are off on, they're our usual preaching team. They're both off. Whose idea was that? Who wasn't checking the holiday calendar? Um, they're both off this week. So we have uh, Plan C, which is, which is myself, hence why I'm here. My name's Anthony, as Matt said, um, and it's great to be here, great to see you. I even put a shirt on today, and I'm thinking, I have no idea, what, I never wear a shirt to church, why did I put a shirt on today? But anyway, let's, let's bear with each other, and let's work through this stuff, and I'm sure that God has got some good things to say to us today. Okay. So before we turn to that passage in Daniel... I'd like to first read uh, a section from Deuteronomy, which we'll have up on the screen shortly. And I'll wait for it on the screen, because I prepared everything using the ESV, only to discover that we use the NIV. So I'm going to read it off the screen, if that's okay. So Deuteronomy chapter 7. Now, this is God speaking through Moses to his people. And they're in the desert. They've been in the desert many years after being um, rescued from Egypt. Um, and this is God speaking to them through Moses. And he says this, When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you, and when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Make no treaty with them and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do then. Break down their altars. Smash their sacred stones cut down their Asherah poles and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. So this section, um, I think, contains, contains three things. It contains, firstly, a promise. This is a promise God makes to his people. that they're, they're about to go into what's called the promised land, the land of Canaan. And God says that he will drive out before them. He will drive out these nations and these lands. He will fight with them. God promises that. It's also a command. It's a command to them to say, you will go and do this. You will go in there and you will drive these nations out. And you will live according to the way that God has told you to live. And then thirdly, it's a warning. You can see that. It's a warning that if, if you don't live in this way, if you don't drive out these nations, if you take false gods, then the Lord's anger will burn against you, and he will destroy you. And then finally, um, an important part that I think covers the whole section is a reminder and a statement from God that the Israelites are a chosen people, a treasured, a treasured possession of God. Of all the things that he has made and done, these people are a treasured possession. And I suppose 
this section kind of um, leads us into the book of Joshua, which is, if you've, been, uh, if you've been here for the last five, six weeks, you'll have heard us talk through and, and preach through uh, the book of Joshua. And what have we seen in Joshua? Well, we have seen miraculous events and victories, haven't we? We've seen God's people crossing the Jordan in full flood. You know, the Ark of the Covenant goes in and the, the waters part and all the people are able to cross this river uh, on dry land. We've seen mighty victories. The walls of Jericho come tumbling down. We've seen tremendous victories in battle. And as, as Joshua tells us in, in chapter 10, for example, this is because the Lord, the God of Israel, has fought for Israel. So God keeps his promise. And we see that in Joshua, that he fights on behalf of Israel, and through his power they are able to accomplish these mighty things. But I think in Joshua we've also seen something else. A bit of an undercurrent that uh, even though these people are living in such miraculous times where they can readily see the amazing wonders that God is doing, the temptation to disobey and the temptation to sin is very strong. If you remember in, in chapter 7, Akan and his sin, he, as they're destroying Jericho, he sees, he sees a precious garment, he sees some gold, and he sees some silver. And in his words, he covets them, he wants them. He knows that these are things to be uh, abandoned and not taken and devoted to destruction, but he takes them for himself. And we see in Joshua the disastrous consequences that that brings. We see in chapter 9 how uh, God's people make a covenant with the Gibeonites. They're tricked into doing it, and, and, and there's a whole myriad of circumstances, but this is something they were instructed not to do. And so I guess if you were here last week and you heard us preach, we hear at the end, in Joshua's sort of final words, a sense that he's, he's really worried that God's people are actually not going to be able to live the way God wants them to. And he says to them, you are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. And well, the, the people, they hear that, but they commit themselves to serving the Lord, and they, they recommit themselves, and they dedicate themselves. And we do read that for that generation who have seen the amazing things that God has done, they live faithful lives. However, It doesn't take long, and in fact, we only have to uh, look into the next book along in the Bible. We only have to look at Judges that picks up the story where Joshua leaves off to see that actually things don't always go as well as they should do. We read in Judges chapter 10 and 11 that as soon as the generation who knew the Lord and had seen these wonderful things, as soon as they die, a new generation comes up who neither know the Lord, all the tremendous things he's done. And the Bible tells us that they do what's evil in the sight of God, and specifically, they worship the Baals. They worship the gods of the surrounding nations. They don't drive out all the other nations, as Moses commanded them to, as we see in Deuteronomy. Instead, they fall away from that. 
And then we see um, through this period that that's a consistent pattern. So God raises up judges to save Israel from their sin and its disastrous consequences. But again and again, the people of God turn away and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. We see it then through the appointment of kings. As we read through the books of Samuel and Kings and Chronicles, we see how Israel appoint kings, and there's some fantastic things that happen. But over time, certainly after the death of Solomon, Israel becomes fragmented, and its kings don't lead their people as it should. And Israel falls into division, uh, into mingling with other nations, and to serving false gods. So the sin of turning away is an ever-present temptation which God people so often give into, despite God's many warnings to them through his prophets. And so that, in a way, is how we end up in Daniel, which is what, we, what the reading that, that, that Steve read for us. You see, we read, um, for example in 2 Chronicles in chapter 36. How eventually, after uh, decades of sinful rule, God allows King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon to come and um, siege Jerusalem, Jerusalem being the, the capital that David has established for his people. And he breaks down its walls, and he burns the temple, the very place where the presence of God and the sacrificial system was uh, visible on earth, is destroyed by fire. The precious things are either broken or taken away. And the people, many of them are taken captive into Babylon, and so all that is left of Jerusalem are broken walls and the poorest of the poor. And Daniel is one of those, one of the first batch of people who is taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar, and he finds himself in Babylon. But you see, Daniel, uh, there are some great stories in the first half of the book of Daniel, which many of us will be familiar with, um, of how Daniel lives a faithful life in the context of being in a, a city where God is is not understood and acknowledged. And he sees some amazing thing happen. But we get to this passage in Daniel chapter 9, uh, which will, will come up on the screen for us. Um, and Daniel is aware that this period of, it's called the exile, this period of exile, this period when God's people have been pulled out of Jerusalem and are in this city of Babylon is not permanent. And he knows it for two reasons, I think. Firstly, because he is devoted to reading the Word of God, the, the precious scrolls that he's been able to take with him to, to Babylon. He's reading in the, in the book of Jeremiah. And he determines, with God's help, that there's going to be a, a period of time after which this exile will come to an end. But I think also he knows, he knows the promises of God. And if we think back if we think back to Deuteronomy, we know that these are a treasured people and God will conquer through them in the end. 
So we find him here at the point uh, where he's looking back on the history of God's people and what has happened. And he's praying. And what I hope, the reason I wanted to look in this section is that hopefully as we look at how Daniel prays, we can get from that a sense of how we should make sense of that period of history from Joshua uh, through to the exile. How we should view that. And also how we should view where we find ourselves now. And we can do that by looking at how Daniel does, does so and how he prays. What is his response to these events? Okay. And bear with me, I think we've probably got, we've got three points, probably about 15 minutes to go. So, so bear with and we'll get there. The first thing that jumps out to me is I think Daniel's response is one of prayer and prayerful repentance. We see in verse 5, if we turn to verse 5 quite clearly, Daniel is a great man and he's done some fantastic things and the Bible paints a wonderful picture of how he's lived righteously. He's turned down um, worship of, of idols He's turned down the rich wealth and, f- and, and wine and food of being part of um, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar's kind of inner circle, which is where he gets promoted to because God is with him. So you could well understand if he was to point the finger and say the disastrous situation we find ourselves in is because of the terrible rule of those kings who led us astray. You know, or, or it's, because, it's because of those, those people who were too timid and too afraid to, to drive out the nations from the promised lands. You know, he could do that, and we could kind of almost empathize with that. But he doesn't. He shoulders the burden of collective responsibility. And he associates with the sin. And he doesn't blame others. Yeah, if we look in verse 5... We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned away from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. He uses the word we. Uh, he, he, he uses the words us, if you like. He, he associates with the sin Um, And he recognizes it in himself. And I think that's important. I think it's important for us to similarly and likewise, when we look at an example of how God's people have sinned and things have gone wrong because of it, to then look at ourselves and look at our lives. The Bible uses an image frequently of following God being like walking down a road and we are to neither turn to the left nor to the right. We are not to be distracted by the things that are going on one way or the other. To be tempted to try and find satisfaction in what we see around us. And I think when we look at our own lives, I know for myself, that we become very aware that we've not lived that straight and narrow life as well. You know, the Bible points out to us very often, and most specifically in somewhere like Romans chapter 3, that all have sinned 
and fallen short of the glory of God. You know, God's, God's standards haven't changed from those Old Testament stories. They've not slipped. We are still also struggling to walk that path, turning neither to the left nor the right. So I think in response to what we see, both in the Old Testament and in our own lives, we need to start um, with prayerful repentance. Second point. But what is the purpose of that repentance? Is it just to make ourselves feel guilty in the hope that somehow, well, if I feel really guilty, then somehow I'm going to maybe do better next time? You know, should we just feel sorry for ourselves? And I think, again, the answer, looking at how Daniel prays, is no. What we're to do is to throw ourselves onto the incredible mercy of God. And I think that's beautifully explained in this passage. If we look at the very start of Daniel's prayer, so if we go back to verse 4 probably, No, sorry, next verse. Skip forward one. Yes, he starts off by saying, Lord, the great and awesome God. He starts off by acknowledging that God is great and that he is awesome. He's astronomical in his power and his ability to create and he's instrumental in the whole of human history that has led up to this point. And actually... The gulf between a righteous God who can do all that and ourselves could not be bigger. If we look in verse 7, Daniel says, Lord, you are righteous, but this day we are covered with shame. The gulf between a righteous God and ourselves could not be bigger. So how then is it possible that Daniel can even begin to pray to this God? How is it possible that we could even begin to pray to God, knowing what we know about ourselves and what we know about God? Well, let's look at verse 18, um, which I think is a wonderful, a wonderful thing. Um, Give ear, O Lord, and hear our prayer. Open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. And this is a bit. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. So Daniel is a, is a fantastic guy who's lived a fantastic life and seen some fantastic things. But he doesn't appeal to God on the basis of his own success or his, 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 his own righteousness. He appeals to God on the basis of his mercy. And that is beautifully answered in the end of this prayer. If we, if we look at uh, verse 22, after Daniel has finished praying, he's, he's visited by an angel uh, with a message from God. And it says, as soon, the angel says, as soon as you began to pray, a word went out which I have come to tell you. And in this translation it says, for you are highly esteemed. Um, in the ESV that I've been looking at, it says, you are dearly loved. 
And I think that echoes the promise of, in Deuteronomy that we read at the start, that you are a treasured possession. And I think we must never forget that. Because there's no, the, the gap between God and ourselves, as Daniel has so helpfully illustrated, is so vast. We can see it in the history of God's people, and actually, if we're honest with ourselves, we see it in our own lives, that we couldn't begin to approach God. But because of his great mercy and the fact that we are dearly loved and a treasured possession, we can speak to him in prayer. So that is, I think, the, the second thing. So the first was uh, that we start with repentance when we see our sin and when we see the sin of God's people. And the second point was that we should throw ourselves onto the incredible mercy of God. And so the third point, and this is, I, th- I hope this is the most exciting one, and if I do a poor job of explaining it, then so be it, but... This is, I think, the most exciting bit. So I will take a moment to make sure I have the right notes. Uh, Yes, I do. There we go. Apologies. You can tell how well prepared I am. Right, okay. So this is the exciting bit, that I think Daniel's prayer here, but actually the whole, the book of Daniel, is pointing to something bigger. It's pointing to hope in the promises of God. Hope in the promises of God, which in our lives is is expressed through Jesus Christ. And so as we begin to come towards and think about Easter, that's why I wanted to do this little section, just to bridge the gap between Joshua and uh, what we're going to go on to next. You see, Daniel, Daniel is praying, and he's praying for the restoration of Jerusalem. Um, we can see that in, in verse 17. For example, we can see that what he wants in verse 17 is, uh, for your sake, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. So Jerusalem is rubble and it's burned and smoking. And Daniel is praying because he wants to see Jerusalem rebuilt. And the reason he wants to see Jerusalem rebuilt is because it is the symbol of God's presence with his people. It's the place where the sacrifices for sin are made according to the sort of the, the, the practices and covenant laid down to Moses. It's where that happens. It's, it's God's physical, tangible presence with his people on earth. And all the other nations look upon it and see a, 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 a fortified, successful Jerusalem is a, a demonstration of God's power on earth. And he is, he is looking for, and he wants to see that. But actually, he, he wants something more as well. And the book of Daniel is wonderfully full of that. And if we just skip back a couple of chapters to Daniel chapter 7, which we're going to bring up, um, Daniel is having a vision. Not unlike some of the visions, incidentally, that the, the kings of the time actually end up having as well. God is speaking in a powerful way, both through Daniel and also the kings like Nebuchadnezzar. That we, If you go back and read Daniel, you'll see that. And he is having a vision of heaven. And he sees heaven and he sees God, the ancient of days, um, as he describes him, seated on on a throne in heaven. And he says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power, and all nations 
and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. You see, Daniel was definitely hoping for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. But as we can see through the history of the Old Testament, these things don't last. And actually, Jerusalem was eventually destroyed. Um, So the physical rebuilding of Jerusalem that he was desperate for would never live up to the glory of, of what's going on here. What is promised here? Well, it's two things. It's it's something that will last forever. So that's not something physical, and that's not something built. And it's something that all nations and peoples of every language will serve, not just a single location for God's people to be in. In fact, it's a person. It's this person, the Son of Man, who we know, and we're fantastically privileged to be living post-Jesus. Because we can see and we know that this man is Jesus. And I say, it's, it's so much better because it's everlasting. But it's better for other reasons as well. I'm going to look quickly at a verse from Hebrews. I don't have this on the screen, but I will read it to you. Okay? And it's from Hebrews chapter 4. And verse 14, and it says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help in time of need. You see, part of the idea of restoring Jerusalem would be that there would then be a high priest in the temple able to offer sacrifices for sin. And that would have been a, that, that's why Daniel wanted that. But any high priest that there could be would have always been associated with that whole history of God's people that we've read about. And therefore would always be associated with sin and failure. So ultimately, would never be able to help us fully. A man like Daniel, Daniel was a, a, is held out to be a pillar of righteousness, a great man who has done great things. And here he is on his knees praying to God for mercy on his people. But as we see from his prayer, even he is sinful and has fallen short of God. So he's of limited use to us. The things that we might look around in the world and say, well, what, what can I find that's going to make me feel better, that's going to help me? Okay, it might be a religious ceremony that makes me feel better about myself. It might be uh, a person that I think, well, if, 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 I, if they can respect me, if they can you know, think that I'm okay, then I'll be happy. Those things are not of help to us. What we really need is a high priest uh, who is able who is able to be of use to us. And that person is Jesus. Why? Because it's, as it said in Hebrews, 
because he has been tempted in every way and yet not sinned. So if we look at the life of Jesus, he was tempted in the wilderness right at the start of his ministry, just like the Israelites were when they left Egypt, tempted in the wilderness. But unlike the Israelites, Jesus did not sin. Jesus, like Daniel, knew what it was um, to, to live a life where there were religious leaders and authorities who were out to get him. But yet Jesus endured. And Jesus knew what it was like to live in a world where the, the message that he had to bring was not popular and was frowned upon, much in the same way as we, as we do today. So Jesus, by living that life and not sinning, is able to be our perfect high priest, something that no, um, no earthly institution, no famous celebrity, nothing else could do for us. Jesus is able to be the perfect high priest who prays to God on our behalf. And then finally, Jesus is not just a priest carrying on the same sacrifices. Daniel is, is pointing something else, that, that Jesus, in fact, uh, brings in a whole new system. See, we read in, again, I'm going to read from Hebrews. And I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 9 when I find it. <laughs> when I find it. Here we are. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 12. So he, that is Jesus, entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of a defiled person with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, through whom the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. You see, I go back to this point. Daniel wanted to see Jerusalem rebuilt and the sacrificial system reinstated. But, you know, a sacrifice of bulls on the altar had only limited potential to atone for our sin. Jesus, we've sung about him, we've called him the lamb, haven't we? Because we... Jesus, as the sacrifice, uh, is able to usher in a whole new covenant with us. So, so as he's sacrificed in our place, um, we don't need bulls to be sacrificed on our behalf. We don't need Jerusalem to be restored. Instead, we have Jesus, the perfect lamb, sacrificed on our behalf. Bring about whole new system. And, and this is something that is definitely um, clear right through from Daniel. And, and also I want to finish, I want to read a little section from Jeremiah, which is the book that Daniel is studying as he is um, as he's uh, making this prayer. And it's Jeremiah, another prophet, Jeremiah 31, verse 31. And he says, Behold, 
The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor and say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. So that is only possible. That is only possible through the sacrifice of Jesus and what he has done for us. And so I think when we look back at the the story of the Old Testament and then we look at the story of Jesus, it should do several things it should as daniel does it should turn us it should turn us to repentance it should turn us to prayer it should highlight to us the need for and the fact that we must throw ourselves on the amazing mercy of god and then it also gives us such great hope for the future because we know that our forgiveness has been won and is assured it's not in doubt it's not in question It's not dependent on our ability um, to live a faithful life. It's secured through Jesus. So that, I think, is a wonderful truth that will put us in good stead as we head towards Easter and as we think of, of that message.